Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to this evening's lecture. Uh, my name is Nick Pierce, and I'm the director of the Institute for Policy Research at the University of Bath. And I'm delighted to be able to welcome you here this evening uh, to this lecture, which is uh, to be given by Guy Shrubshaw, um, Guy, who is an activist, a writer, an environmental campaigner, uh, and the author of a, uh, a recent book, Who Owns England? And um, Guy's book is about some fundamental questions uh, about our land, about who owns it, uh, about how those patterns of ownership um, came into being, um, how they were sustained over many, many centuries, and the consequences of those patterns of uh, land ownership for uh, the way we live today, for how we can deal with climate change, for how we house our population, for how we uh, relate to each other, for patterns of uh, wider social and economic inequalities. So it's a very, very uh, important subject um, uh, and one that Guy uh, in his campaigning work for Friends of the Earth uh, spends a lot of time working on. But here tonight he's going to talk about uh, this book in particular, Who Owns Our uh, Land? Um, one that, as I say, exposes a number of things that many of us will not really be familiar with about uh, the land ownership in our country, in our green and pleasant land. So thanks very much indeed for, for joining us. And with no further ado, I'll hand over to Guy. Guy. So yes, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, good evening to everyone. Uh, and I'll be talking tonight about Who Owns England, um, which is the book that I wrote and came out last year. Uh, and it's just been published last year. Um, and particularly about how land impacts upon uh, nature and climate and interacts with some of the most pressing issues that we face as a society today. Um, one of the things that people often ask me um, when asking about my book is, is why do you start investigating um, this obscure question of who owns England? Uh, and I think really uh, partly it's down to how frustratingly difficult it is to actually find an answer to that alluringly simple question. Um, so this slide I want to show you, the acreocracy of England, the owners of 3,000 acres culled from Doomsday Book. Uh, this is a book that was published in 1873 or thereabouts. Um, and often in uh, talks I give, this is the moment at which I do a bit of audience interaction, which is obviously going to be somewhat more difficult this evening, in which I ask people, who's heard of Doomsday Book? And I think I can probably safely say that almost everyone on this call will have heard of Doomsday Book. But actually what this book here is referring to is not the original Doomsday Book from 1066 or 1086 rather, uh, shortly after the Norman Conquest, uh, when King William, uh, the Conqueror, came over and, uh, and did his first enumeration of who owned this country and, and how to tax them all. Uh, this is the book it's referring to here is a second doomsday book that almost no one has, seems to have heard of and it's been airbrushed from history but was a much more recent account of uh, who owns uh, England and, and indeed it was extended to other parts of the, of, of the British Isles um, but it was done in 1873 by uh, commissioned by the House of Lords uh, as a way to respond to calls for land reform uh, from from radicals during the mid-19th century from the Chartists onwards and it revealed at the time uh, that England was in fact owned by about four, half of it was owned by about 4,000 members of the aristocracy and gentry. Um, so this isn't exactly what the House of Lords expected. They hoped to be able to quash the cries from radicals for land reform uh, and to show that actually land was now democratically owned in modern industrial 
Victorian Britain. But in fact, the opposite was the case. They confirmed uh, the fact that land was in the hands of a very few and actually fueled uh, the cries for land reform and for, for radical redistribution of land. So spool forward to today, and are we, are we really in any different situation? Uh, um, we've had a land registry uh, in this country, the official body for registering uh, land in England and Wales since uh, 1862. Uh, but in fact, it still hasn't completed its job of registering all the land. Uh, it's still only about 83, perhaps at best 85% complete currently. So there's still a huge chunk of land that's unregistered, whose ownership remains officially unknown, uh, and that we have to guess uh, at who actually owns it. So there's this huge secrecy around land ownership, I think, and this is one of the things that really drew me into wanting to investigate it. And the other thing that really shows shines a light on how secret land ownership still is, is the fact that for the stuff that has been registered, all the, all the land and fields uh, and properties that have been registered with the land registry, you still have to pay three pounds for every land title. And that may not sound like much, uh, but when you realize that there are 24 million land titles that have been registered uh, and you do the maths and it turns out that this is the 72 million pound question of finding out who owns England um, and, and indeed Wales, uh, that it's incredibly difficult, therefore, to, to get a handle on this from the official government body. Uh, so I didn't have £72 million to hand uh, when I started setting out uh, investigating who owns England, so I had to go through different methods, and I'll talk about a little bit about some of those different methods of investigation uh, throughout the, the slideshow. Uh, but I just wanted to flick forward now, because we talked about uh, about how many people owned England or half of England in the mid-Victorian period? Well, not a vast amount appears to have changed because by my best estimate and, and various statistical uh, ways of, of, of looking at this issue, uh, less than 1% of the population own half of all England still today. And that is a really startling uh, level of inequality, I think, and um, part of, Part of the reason why I think uh, land ownership remains a, a big secret is to do with that um, concentration of wealth and power and the desire of wealth and power to uh, conceal uh, what's going on as a way of helping to preserve uh, ongoing wealth and power because fewer people looking at what's going on, the less scrutiny it gets, um, the, less, the less likely you are to have to lose that, that position of, of influence and status within society as a landowner. Just to flick onto the next slide. Um, we start to break this down. We start to see how, uh, also how, how concentrated even within this 1% we, we're talking about here. Uh, land ownership uh, has remained unchanged uh, in, in many respects for centuries. We, we can see here that actually, by my best estimates, a huge amount of the land in England remains in the hands of the aristocracy and gentry, about 30% or so. Um, contrast that to um, the amount of land that's owned by homeowners, uh, only about 5% um, is comprises home, uh, homes and gardens uh, in, in England. And that's coming from everything from the national ecosystem assessment through to ONS data. And you can see that when we sometimes hear from politicians that we're a property owning democracy, or indeed when you hear from um, some conservationists that, uh, that we're worried about uh, you know, everything being concreted over, um, clearly, there are issues with 
urban development, urban sprawl. Um, if we were to build houses everywhere, uh, you know, in, into the countryside, even more than they currently are, then we would be doing doing more to damage nature, uh, and there would be a would be a cost to that. But I think we need to really understand better how land is is carved up in the UK uh, and in England, um, and to to get a better grasp of greater land literacy. I think about how it's divided up, both in terms of its use and in terms of its ownership, because as we can see, the number the amount of land that's owned by a few thousand members of the aristocracy and landed gentry vastly outweighs all of that, the land that's owned by homeowners. Um, and some of the other slides, some of the other uh, bars in this bar chart here, we can see uh, land owned by corporations. Obviously that's uh, developed quite a lot since the Victorian period, since the, since the last doomsday was done. Uh, oligarchs and city bankers and new money uh, own a huge amount of land as well. Um, some of that has replaced uh, aristocratic estates as they've declined, but still uh, still holding strong there as well. And, and another striking thing that I think this um, bar chart reveals is the uh, sheer amount of land that's actually owned by the public sector and how actually how small that is compared to everything else and also how much that's declined over time. A lot of that land, uh, a lot of the land that the public sector owned in its heyday of sort of post-World War II through to the 1970s has been sold off in the last 40 years. Uh, at, through periods of privatisation under Margaret Thatcher, through to austerity under uh, David Cameron and since. To give you just a bit more of a sense of what the concentration of land ownership can mean on a, on a local level, I wanted to show you uh, one example of a land ownership map that I made. And this is showing you uh, who owns um, large parts of the county that I was not lucky enough to grow up in. It was a very Leafy County. I knew it was quite wealthy when I was growing up there. Um, it was a uh, very beautiful bit of the countryside, West Berkshire. Uh, uh, it was also a scene of environmental protest and uh, other protests whilst I was growing up. Uh, Greenham Common uh, was, was a big battle in the 1980s um, over land owned by the Ministry of Defence and leased out to the US Air Force, the sighting of cruise missiles. That was a big battle over landed access to an old, uh, what had pre previously been a common. But also there were environmental protests going on whilst I was growing up there in the 1990s with the Newbury Bypass when Swampy was uh, getting, getting his uh, claim to fame and uh, going down tunnels uh, and then appearing on How I Got News For You. Um, but what I didn't really realise when I was growing up there was quite how wealthy some of the uh, inhabitants of West Berkshire were and how much land they owned. Uh, and so each of the colours on this map you can see is, uh, is our estates. Um, you can see that um, they're hugely concentrated, hugely in terms of ownership structure. Um, in fact, the uh, large blue estate on the right-hand side of the map here is actually the Englefield estate, which is owned by uh, the recently uh, former MP for the area, Richard Bennion. Um, so you get a sense there, I think, of how wealth and power, land ownership still uh, to this day have uh, are intertwined that um, the largest law the largest lord of the manor as it were in west berkshire uh, became its mp uh, in recent times um, and i think this is a pattern that's repeated across the country um, the source of information for this um, for this set of maps didn't come directly from the land registry it would have cost a huge amount of money to get all that information out of the land registry but it came from another source a, a source called the uh, highways act maps and these are, these are lodged by landowners when they wish to defend their land against um, public rights of way claims. 
So in some ways, their landowners are hoist by their own petard by this, because uh, actually they, they have inadvertently revealed the existence of, of their estates and how big they are, and uh, the fact that they are uh, trying to deter uh, future rights of way from being put through their estates. But it's only if you uh, are as geeky as I am and get into this in, in a big way and start to look around, poke around the back, uh, back end of, of, of local authority websites, do you start to find these maps. Uh, most local authorities have them. Uh, they take a lot to kind of extract them and get the data out of them and start to kind of make them more accessible. But this sort of information is, is partly how I started investigating um, land ownership and, and started to, you know, st start to shine a light on some of this hidden information. Static maps are all well and good, um, but if you really want to dig into this, I think you have to really look at some of the interactive data uh, on this. And, and this is a map that uh, I did the investigations for, but was built by a fantastic coder and data journalist, Anna Powell-Smith, and it's available at this URL, map.whoemsengland.org. So please do have a play around with that if you haven't seen it before and um, want, to, want to investigate it. You can zoom in, you can see uh, and click on each of the uh, each of the shapes, each of the polygons, as they're called, um, to find out more about um, different landowners. You can see in this sort of snapshot here of southern England, um, particularly standing out there as Salisbury Plain, um, coloured in, in black, owned by the Ministry of Defence, not so far from Bath, but also areas owned by the Crown Estate, coloured in purple, or that sort of rash of, uh, of, of land owned in red, uh, coloured in red, which is um, land owned by offshore and overseas companies, which is something that has particularly become I guess an issue in the last 20 or 30 years and was something that Anna along with uh, a very brilliant uh, journalist at Private Eye, Christian Eriksson, investigated and was one of the reasons why I also started to investigate this and um, got interested in the issue as well in the first place. So you might be thinking by now, okay, land ownership is unequal, the world is unfair, why does this really matter to us particularly today? Isn't this all a kind of kind of a, a, an interesting history that um, England remains a very conservative country uh, and, uh, and, and a very equal country. Well, I would argue that there is an additional set of reasons to care about land ownership in the 21st century, and that relates to the climate emergency and indeed the interrelated ecological emergency affecting nature and biodiversity. And that's because land is obviously fundamental to the climate crisis. Uh, we often are perhaps more accustomed to thinking of Climate, the climate crisis as being a, a crisis of energy uh, and fossil fuel use, but equally it's about imbalance between uh, sources and sinks of emissions. So if we're to actually start tackling uh, the climate emergency seriously, if we're to get to net zero, as the government has committed us to doing by 2050 in this country, we can't just uh, get emissions down to zero as quickly as possible, although that's absolutely essential. We also have to remove some of the pollution that we've put into the atmosphere already. And one of the safest ways of doing that I would argue is to, uh, to, is to make better use of our land rather than uh, relying on unproven technologies like uh, carbon capture and storage um, and indeed things that could be potentially very damaging to, um, uh, to the ecosystem by further intensifying things like bioenergy crops. We ought to be working better with natural carbon sinks, uh, things like trees and peat, peat and other things which we'll talk about in a minute. But I think to really to be able to get a handle on that and to increase the uh, usage of natural climate solutions, we have to really get, tackle uh, land ownership and get to grips with it, because who owns land gets to decide a huge amount uh, uh, how it's used. Um, one of the ways in which land is currently used that's um, hugely detrimental to climate change 
is this. Uh, this is a picture of moorland burning that still uh, goes on in our uplands in England. In fact, just recently started again on October the 1st, which is the start of the, the burning season. And we're used to seeing, uh, I think, unfortunately, depressingly used to seeing uh, pictures of, of wildfires, of, of, of vegetation on fire nowadays uh, being caused in places like the Amazon or indeed in uh, Australia or in California. And this, you know, as, as the world warms, we're going to see yet more of this going on. But this is an instance of us deliberately setting fire to an ecosystem. Um, it's being done right now under our very noses in parts of England that perhaps not many people are aware of. Uh, and it's a Victorian anachronism in the 21st century in a warming world. Uh, and the reason this is done is, is for the, essentially for the benefit of around 150 grouse moor estates that own an area of land the size of Greater, England, of Greater London, sorry. Uh, and that's just in England, there's even more of them in Scotland. Um, they do this to manage them as grass moors uh, for the benefit of shooting. And they set fire to the heather uh, at this time of year in order to create uh, a food source for young grouse chicks to be able to eat uh, and to maximize their numbers so that they can shoot them when it comes around to August the 12th, which is the so-called glorious 12th, the start of the shooting season. Um, and this is done essentially to, to create a, a monoculture, a habitat that is uh, managed entirely for the maximization of, of shooting of, of, of a sport, uh, maximizing the bag of, of game birds, as it's called. And if we look at where um, grouse moors are found, um, they are actually found on areas uh, where most soil carbon is found in England. And this, this map shows you, uh, is a soil carbon map, um, generated by uh, CEH and Cranfield University. Um, and the darker the red, the more, the more soil carbon there is. And we can see here that there's uh, lots of, a lot of soil carbon stored in the uplands, uh, the Pennines, the Peak District, the Lake District, uh, and the North York Moors, um, not to mention uh, what's going on in Wales there as well, and obviously in the, in the, in the lowland fens country as well. But focusing here on the upland peat, um, this is all, these are all peat bogs, but they are also, where we found our grouse moors. So essentially, uh, this, this map shows you the, the location of the grouse moors. We'll just flip back forwards between the two slides. We can see there's a very good match. So essentially what that means is that 150 people, grouse moor owners, own our largest carbon store, which is pretty staggering. And, and, a, and a, another way of thinking about the concentration of power and wealth and influence, I think, in this country, because they also ultimately have a huge say over our future, the future of our climate, the future of these uh, areas as ecosystems and what we do with them. And whilst they remain grouse moors, uh, and particularly grouse moors that are intended to be uh, used for, in a way that maximizes um, the, the number of, of grouse that can be shot, um, essentially seeing this as a kind of form of, of canned shooting as Benedict MacDonald, who, the conservationist who re wrote a book called Rebirding, uh, calls it um, not a not a kind of traditional form of shooting or hunting um, that uh, is on skill, but actually one that simply puts uh, emphasis on the ease of being able to shoot the maximum number of, of birds. Uh, I don't see there being any real major change to this. Essentially, we have to bring an end to uh, this pattern of ownership uh, and certainly this pattern of shooting uh, and, and very much this pattern of, of land management if we're to see any different future 
for our uplands and for our largest carbon store. But I also wanted to talk a little bit about how land ownership interacts with our national parks. So many of our national parks in England are also found in our uplands. Um, this shows you the ownership of the North York Moors National Park. Uh, and un unlike in the US and in many other countries, um, our national parks are not owned by the nation or for the nation. They are, vast, the vast majority of them are in private ownership still. Um, you know, you think of US national parks like Yosemite and Yellowstone as being uh, very large federal reserves. Um, it's not the case in the UK. Uh, our national park authorities do own some land within each of, the, each of their jurisdictions, but it's a, a tiny percentage in each. Um, and here we can see the fact that actually it's a very small number of private landowners who own the vast majority of the upland areas of this national park. It's about 15 to 20 landowners. There's a, uh, an earl or two, a duke or two, uh, the Duchy of Lancaster, the Queen, in other words, uh, two Viscounts, and the bloke who set up Carphone Warehouse and who incidentally fixed Boris Johnson's holiday for him in Mustique over last Christmas, uh, a man called David Ross, who owns the Rosedale and Westerdale moors in the centre of this map here. Um, again, why does this matter? Well, I think it matters because these are our national parks. And in the end, uh, we have to have a say, I think, ultimately over how these parks and these areas of land are, are managed and owned for the nation. Um, at the moment, national park authorities have very little say really over how these areas of land are managed. They do have some control as a planning authority over the built environment and what's done in terms of development, rightly, uh, in, in national parks. But they don't really have very much to be able to say or control about how the, the vast majority of the land is used. Uh, so they don't have control over forestry. Uh, we obviously have a large amount of land here owned by the Forestry Commission, but also other private forestry uh, enterprises as well. Uh, and they certainly don't have very much sway over how land is used. Uh, moorland is used for grass moors, for burning, uh, for overgrazing by sheep, uh, and other, uh, you know, potentially destructive environmental practices. Uh, there was a review recently carried out for the government of national parks and A and Bs called the Glover Review, after Julian Glover, its author. Uh, and the government have yet to respond to that, but it did make some useful recommendations, I think, uh, although probably not ones that were particularly radical. Um, about how national parks surely have a role to play in the 21st century in tackling the climate crisis. Um, at the moment, their statutory duty does not include any mention of that. Indeed, really what national parks have been set up to do is to manage an area of land that's deemed to be aesthetically pleasing and beautiful. Um, there's absolutely no doubt that many of the landscapes in our national parks are indeed very beautiful, but equally there is much, much to be uh, desired about how they're being managed uh, for, for nature. Um, a recent RSPB, report looked at how triple SIs, sites of special scientific interest, are in a worse state in many of our national parks than they are outside of our national parks, which I think gives you an indication of what a state they are in. I'd like to move on to talk about trees, um, because trees are one way I think which we, we should be um, increasing the carbon storage in our biosphere in our, in our uh, ecosystems in the UK and in England. Um, peat is, is absolutely essential. It, it contains a huge amount of carbon already. And if we were to get it to, uh, back into a healthy functioning state, it would start to uh, start to sequester more carbon again. But at the moment, it's, it's currently emitting 
uh, about 23 megatons of, of CO2e every year. Um, trees have, have a really important role to play in already drawing down carbon and I think by increasing area, uh, the area of woodland in England and in the UK, they can do a lot more. And something I've been doing with Friends of the Earth in our campaign um, to double tree cover has been looking at uh, mapping where it's possible to um, establish new woodlands and do so in a way that is uh, clearly putting the right tree in the right place or indeed allowing nature to do that job for us by naturally regenerating um, woodlands and scrub. And so this is a this is give, give you a bit more information about some of the campaign I've been working on at Friends of the Earth. One of the things we've been trying to do is work to persuade and cajole lots of landowners uh, who own large amounts of land, who own potentially suitable land for planting or growing more trees, um, to be more active in doing so. So we've been talking to and trying to pressure everyone from councils and farmers through to water companies and the Church of England. And one thing in particular we've been doing is looking at the um, top 10 institutional landowners in England. Um, this is this shows you what they own. Uh, this is this is the list of the top 10 institutional landowners starting the Forestry Commission, National Trust, MOD, uh, the Crown Estate, um, United Utilities, one of the largest water companies, um, Highways England and Network Rail, who obviously uh, most of the land is given over to, to roads and railways, but also own uh, actually a lot of other land as well around the side of roads. And railways where actually could be could be potentially good for for having trees on to be able to buffer against noise and so on as well and pollution um rspb the duchy of cornwall the princess of wales's estate and the church commissions um but something that we found so working with a very brilliant um phd student tim harris who is working at the natural history museum currently he uh took this landowner landowner data set for us and intersected it with the national forest inventory and we were able to then look to see what that uh, what that meant in terms of uh, woodland cover for each of these top 10 landowners and next slide shows you um, our, our landowner league table um, by woodland cover uh, ranked by percentage of woodland on uh, the land owned by these top 10 landowners and obviously unsurprising the forest commission is the top um, this isn't a commentary on the quality of that woodland the, you know a lot of the obviously the forestry commission's uh, trees uh, and plantate will be plantations uh, of, of you know, dubious potential biodiversity benefit, although, you know, undoubtedly locking up quite a lot of carbon. Um, but in terms of sheer overall area, um, you can see here uh, the percentage of woodland on each of these landowners' uh, estates, with the Duchy of Cornwall surprisingly second from bottom, despite everything that Prince Charles often has said about planting trees, uh, and right at the very bottom, the church commissioners, uh, the pension fund, essentially, the, the financial investment arm of the Church of England. Uh, and I think we were quite surprised, particularly by um, how low down um, the Prince of Wales and the Duchy of Cornwall were in this, uh, but also particularly shocked by uh, how little the church commissioners appear to have done in terms of uh, growing trees on their land. Uh, not least because the Church of England has, um, as part of its uh, kind of mandate, its, its, its mission, its stated mission is, is the preservation and, and restoration of creation. Uh, and indeed, they've recently signed up via General Synod to a target to, to get to net zero by 2030. Um, so clearly carbon sinks are going to be a, a crucial part of this and natural climate solutions are a really important part of how the church and other, uh, other organisations uh, can contribute towards getting to net zero. And we thought this was um, something we wanted to try and do was to start to kind of shine a light on how landowners um, 
could and should be made, uh, particularly large landowners could and should be made responsible for um, doing more to help tackle the climate and ecological crises. Um, you know, it's something where uh, we've seen uh, the success of the divestment campaign in putting pressure on uh, large pension funds for their investments in fossil fuels and pressuring them into divest from fossil fuel investments. But we feel that something that could be done more in future is to start to turn also to large landowners and to start to scrutinise more in the way of what they are doing with their estates. After all, in the end, it's kind of a bit of a zero-sum game if you own a large chunk of, of England um, and you've decided that you want to do XYZ with your estate, you want to burn it for grouse moors or overgraze it with sheep, it's it's kind of preventing that land from being uh, it's getting to its full potential as a carbon sink or indeed as a as a thriving ecosystem. So um, I think there's a huge responsibility that large landowners have in terms of helping tackle the climate crisis and the, the biodiversity crisis that we face. And hopefully this is something that more organisations, more activists will jump onto in the future and uh, start to get interested in in what their local landowners are doing uh, and what indeed what the large landowners are doing with the huge amounts of land that they control. Now, I mentioned in the blurb for this talk that I would talk about pheasants. So I can't avoid talking about pheasants. This is another issue to do with land and land ownership. Um, there are huge numbers of pheasants introduced into the countryside every year. Um, we might think of them as, as very harmless. Indeed, in many respects, they are. They just run around committing suicide in front of cars um, as they run out in, in front of, our, in front of uh, cars at an absolute rate of knots. But there are so many of them introduced into the English countryside nowadays um, by gamekeepers, by estates that want to shoot them, that they are starting to have an ecological impact um, sh through sheer weight of numbers. In fact, uh, I think the latest figures are around 50 million pheasants are introduced every year um, in the UK. Um, and for a non-native uh, bird species, it's quite staggering how little uh, has to be done uh, in terms of uh, having any licenses if you're a landowner that you and you want to introduce uh, pheasants in, in a, on a huge scale um, you only have to register the, the fact that you uh, own them and the numbers that you own um, uh, and this was my attempt here to try and use some of that data from the animal and plant health authority to find out where the, the largest concentrations uh, of pheasant releases are in the country released pheasants, uh, pheasant ownership is. Um, and in fact, one of these uh, postcode areas, postcode districts in Yorkshire has over a million pheasants registered in it. So you can start to get a sense of how many there must be running around in that part of the country and having an impact on uh, everything from adders. There was an interesting story the other day about how pheasants and game bird releases are contributing to the decline of adders because they predate upon them uh, through to just simply the structure of, of ecosystems, the structure of woodlands and hedgerows. And there's research that's been done by the Game of Wildlife Conservation Trust, many of whose members are indeed um, pheasant estates, uh, but they even they have, 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 uh, have done research showing how uh, this uh, high densities of release uh, pheasants can start to have a negative ecological impact on the, on the countryside. Um, there's an interesting legal case that uh, campaigners Wild Justice, uh, Chris, Chris Packer, Mark Avery uh, and Ruth Tingay, uh, have, has recently, recently launched and I think they've got a judicial review coming up for uh, a hearing in early November uh, challenging the government to do an environmental impact assessment um, on, the, um, on the environmental impacts of this sheer amount of 
pheasants that Lando has released into the countryside. Um, and hopefully they'll be successful in getting the government to have to do one because uh, clearly things have got to a, to a pretty bizarre state of affairs where you can release 50 million pheasants without, a, without an EIA or indeed without uh, licenses. Um, and yet to be able to reintroduce beavers uh, to this country, uh, a native species that were wiped out by people 400 years ago, the amount of paperwork you have to do to, to be able to reintroduce those is enormous. So something has got badly out of kilter in the way in which we treat um, our land and, our, and, the, and the mix of species that we allow to thrive in it. I wanted to turn now to talking about rewilding. Um, rewilding is something that has obviously become rightly, I think, very, uh, very much on everyone's tip of everyone's tongues recently. Um, it's become uh, a very popular idea thanks to books like George Monbiot's Feral uh, and Isabella Tree's book Wilding. Uh, and this uh, picture is uh, of the Nepestate, um, which is owned by Isabella Tree and Charlie Burrell, uh, Three thousand acre estates that I had a, the pleasure of being able to visit uh, earlier this year when uh, lockdown restrictions were slightly eased. Um, and it's and it's an amazing example of actually how there are some fantastic some fantastic work being done by large landowners, uh, but unfortunately uh, I think they are um, some of the exceptions to the rule rather than rather than the rule itself. Um, but what they've done uh, at the Nepa State is, is absolutely miraculous. Um, they've allowed scrub to return. Uh, they've allowed trees to naturally regenerate. They've reintroduced um, wild, wild species, but also uh, domesticated uh, animals that, uh, that to, to start to mimic the processes that we had uh, in this country, um, but have since uh, kind of wiped out species that have formed those roles those, in those ecological niches. Uh, and what they've what they've seen over the last twenty years is a huge return of wildlife to their to their estate, um, and it, and it's something that's absolutely amazing and fantastic to see. Um, there are other landowners in places like uh, the Cairngorms in Scotland, where uh, some very large uh, sporting estates there have started to control the kind of rampant deer numbers that they've seen uh, in recent years, uh, and that's allowing um, more trees to return allowing rivers to, to be re-wiggled and rewilded in themselves as well. Um, so I suppose, to be honest, this, this raises a question and something that uh, I've seen uh, raised by rewilders, which, which is that actually large estates can be a good thing from the point of view of nature, because they clearly allow for uh, very large refuges to be, uh, for nature to be established. Uh, they allow um, the creation of, of, of reserve, nature reserves at a considerable scale. Uh, you just simply can't get the sort of joining up of ecological networks uh, and the restoration of some of these um, some of these keystone species if you were to only do conservation on small on a small scale on very small sites. And there's absolutely a lot of truth to that. Um, uh, a lot of the sites that are being looked at by Rewilding Britain, which is an organisation that got founded um, out of the back of uh, George Monbiot's uh, book book on rewilding. Uh, a lot of their estate, the estates that they're working with are, are very large estates. They're uh, aristocrats and, uh, and, and, and others who have decided to return some of their lands um, to the wild or to, to, to at least form nature-friendly forms of farming. But I think probably what we can also see from some of the earlier slides that I showed is that, again, these few pioneers, uh, pioneer lander, landowners remain the exception rather than the rule at this stage. And there are many other landowners who are doing the opposite of rewilding, who are 
indeed causing, uh, I would say, disasters like the Saddleworth Moor fire that we saw back in 2018 that took, took place on a grouse moor uh, during a very hot summer, um, but on land that had been mismanaged, that had been desiccated and dried out uh, and had become a tinderbox. So um, whilst we still have, uh, whilst we have some amazing examples of landowners doing the right thing, we also have the broader picture uh, where landowners, landowners and the pattern of land ownership is, is, is starkly uh, tilted against nature from recovery. And I don't think in the end that we can hope to rely simply on the goodwill of a few enlightened landowners when faced with the urgency of the climate and ecological emergencies. We need landscape scale changes. And I think part of that is about bringing greater pressure to bear and greater scrutiny to bear on landowners as a whole. So really to wrap up and to conclude the slides I have and before we go into more of a discussion, I think we need to do much more in England and the rest of the UK to pressure landowners into acting on climate change and the ecological emergency. We need to rediscover um, an interest as a, as a country in, in land and how it's used and who owns it. Um, we need nature recovery networks that integrate with the planning system to help guide future areas for nature recovery. Um, but in order to create viable ecological networks, we're going to have to contend with the existing patterns of land ownership or bring about some degree of, of land reform uh, and start to increase the amount of land in community ownership, for example. Uh, there's a fantastic example of, uh, of a community that's currently banding together to try to buy up uh, a former grass moor estate on the, on the borders, in the, in the Scottish borders called the Langholm Moor Community Buyout. And they're making use of, of, of laws uh, that Scotland enjoys, but it, uh, we don't have in England and Wales, uh, a strengthened power of community purchase and access to recourse to some public funding. But even that community who are doing so well at raising money are finding it incredibly hard to contend with the hugely high land values that are still attached to sporting estates, uh, such as the one they're trying to purchase. They have to raise six million pounds. I think they've got about three million pounds of it raised so far, uh, but there's about a month to go. So they're, they're really desperate to try and get more money to be able to purchase that, that estate and, and rewild it. Um, in the absence of, 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 strength, of a strengthening of community right to buy powers in in England or indeed a, a reduction in land values so that it makes it more viable for everyone to get involved with. I think we do have to contend with the some of the existing patterns of land ownership, but I think we absolutely have to uh, create greater transparency about who owns land and uh, increase the amount of scrutiny on landowners and their responsibilities to manage land in the right way for all of us, because ultimately this is our land too. I think you might be on mute. Thank you very much indeed, guys. Sorry, I was just coming off mute there. That was um, a really fascinating uh, lecture. Thanks so much indeed. Well, um, we, we, and we've got a number of questions um, from our audience that are coming in. And uh, I, I'll start them, I'll kick them off if I may, just by this question that you've you touched on there towards the end on the sort of balance between seeking changes in land ownership, um, deconcentration of land ownership, and increasing community or public ownership of land versus uh, other measures to regulate uh, existing owners and to um, change uh, what they do with their land. Um, I mean, given what you say about the sort of persistence of 
forms of land ownership and tenure over many centuries. Um, where should the balance lie there? I mean, if, if, you, if you stress the reform of ownership, do you find yourself then operating just at the margins? And if so, do you need a kind of radical strategy? Or do you think actually, look, you know, the, the most important thing to do is just to, as we do with the rest of the economy, if you like, for trying to uh, adjust particularly for climate change, um, is just to, is to regulate and impose uh, new forms of uh, activity on existing owners? Yes, I think it's a really good question. I mean, I think some some people sometimes are disappointed that I'm not kind of call it, calling for a kind of full pitchforks revolution and that we should all go and seize land from the great aristocrats and uh, bring it back into peasant ownership or, or, or the commons or whatever. Um, I, I mean, I think, unfortunately, uh, Gerald Wynne Stanley and the Diggers, who are a fantastic uh, inspirational uh, bunch of revolutionaries during the English Civil War, tried to do just that. And even during the upheaval of the Civil War, after we cut the head off the king and uh, everything was uh, potentially the world was being turned upside down, even they were unable to do so at such a time of ferment. And I think uh, I think probably that's 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 not going to be the, the right strategy going forward right now. Um, but I think I think that actually land reform is is perhaps in the 21st century is perhaps um, more subtle, but I think more interesting than simply about um, changing uh, who owns the land. I think it is about land is land ownership is about a bundle of property rights, ultimately, um, the right to exclude others, for example, uh, as well as own land is, is an interesting question. Um, uh, it's seen as a kind of inalienable part of property rights or land ownership in in England, um, but actually we do now have the right to roam over some parts of, of the country. So that's a way in which we've started to change the um, nexus of property rights there and said, uh, said that actually more people should be allowed to have access to land even if they don't own it. Uh, and I think when it comes to things like climate change and, and the ecological emergency, we, we, we've got so little time, we have to move incredibly rapidly to get these transformational changes. I do absolutely think there should be an increase in the community ownership of land. I think we should be following what Scotland has been doing in the last 20 years and increasing community ownership of land through things like community right to buy. And I think that could be beneficial for, for wildlife and for, and for the climate crisis if, if that led to greater kind of rewilding by communities or indeed greater control of uh, watersheds, such as you know, if, 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 if people in Hebden Bridge, which is always being flooded out by the grass moor, that's just upstream from them, if they were able to control that land and that, that natural watershed as a community asset, I think that would be fantastic uh, and, and could be replicated across other places as well. But I do think that we do have to contend with the fact that um, this is a system of ownership that has, has, has existed for the last thousand years or thereabouts, uh, and we have to be able to put pressure on existing landowners as well as try and uh, make changes to the, to, the, to the pattern of land ownership. So I would say that, yes, it's about increasing transparency increasing scrutiny, more people taking an interest in, in who owns land and how it's, being, uh, how it's being used. And, you know, doing things like learning from the divestment movement, who put so much excellent pressure on pension funds and other, other large uh, investors, to be able to kind of apply that now to uh, landowners as the kind of next frontier, I think, in, in the climate fight. Great. Well, we've got we've got lots of um, uh, questions coming in. Um, one was uh, first one was when you, when you expose these sort of top ten institutional landowners for having such little woodland. Uh, I mean, what kind of response did you get from them? And that's what, what one question. Uh, and and the other is, um, you know, are, are there just ways of moving? Uh, well, there's a set of questions around farming, really. Where do farmers sit in your ownership patterns? And 
isn't it more appropriate to think about regenerative farming practices than planting trees? Um, and, uh, and, you know, where do tenant farmers generally sit in these dynamics of land ownership and management? So perhaps you could say a bit about those questions, uh, Guy. Yes, sure. I should have probably written down the first of those. Sorry, but farmers. Well, the first one was just what, what response did you get from the top tenants? Oh, yes. yes. Um, we've had a very polite response from the Duchy of Cornwall, uh, as you would expect from from, uh, from Prince Charles and his and his his office. But um, uh, I understand that they're carrying out a kind of uh, an, more of a kind of an assessment in the round of the uh, uh, ecosystems on their on their estate, um, uh, which is you know commendable. But I mean, I think we'll be interested to see if they uh, will be doing more to change that in future in terms of uh, in, in trying to restore more nature and increase the amount of wood and cover and other other habitats. Mm. Um, from the church commissioners, I have to say they they are uh, they're a very secretive organisation. Uh, they have been for many very many centuries, or at least their predecessors were as well. Um, uh, and I think they are. I think others would also rightly criticise them for being very focused on, 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 on the bottom line when it comes to, uh, you know, they are ultimately there, of course, they are the pension fund for the Church of England, essentially. And so they obviously have a fiduciary duty to their, you know, to their, to the clergy and to the, to the pensions, uh, pension holders. But I, I do think they also uh, have certain moral duties, uh, as well as, as duties to the rest of us, in terms of the huge amount of land they own. So I think I think I would like to see it. Hopefully, they will see more engagement from them in the future. Um, I think in terms of farmers, yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, certainly I've talked about trees and peat, but obviously missing out huge amounts of other ways in which land is used. Uh, and certainly, certainly there's a huge role that nature-friendly farming and regenerative agriculture has to play, uh, agroecology, whatever you wish to call it. And these sorts of different techniques uh, are incredibly important. But, you know, also this is about agroforestry, I think. Uh, agroforestry being a, a really important way of of starting to kind of blur the boundaries as, as there always used to be between farming and forestry. They've each developed into, uh, you know, quite quite destructive monocultures in many respects. Um, but if you look at the, you know, how farming used to be, um, if you read uh, what the uh, you know, great uh, author Oliver Rackham writes about uh, woodlands management in previous centuries, you know, that, that used to be, you know, the, the, the proper management of woodlands, whether that's as hedgerows or copses or, you know, coppicing, Used to be much more part of um, you know every farm, and I think that's sort of if we can get back to something like that, or rather forward to something like that in the future, supported by uh, new systems of farm subsidy like the environmental land management system that's coming in post Brexit, then I think that would be a very good outcome. Um, in terms of land ownership by by farmers, yes, I, I perhaps slightly glossed over that in the in the bar graph I showed it, showed earlier, but you know a lot of farmers uh, are tenants, um, and so they will ultimately be. Uh, you know, ten tenanting from some of the larger estates, whether that's the old aristocratic estates or some of the, the newer newer uh, newer money, uh, and um, you know, some some farms are obviously very large agri businesses and would would come under the kind of the corporate uh, you know kind of category uh, in that in that uh, uh, typology. So so I think yeah, they, they're sort of covered largely there. But there's an interesting set of statistics I, I had to rely on to be able to try and get a sense of of how. Um, concentrated land ownership is in England um, and it's the um, farm uh, data that uh, DEFRA publish each June so if anyone's interested in looking at the in, in greater detail at the breakdown of, of land ownership within uh, you know sort of farming sector then you can look at that and start to see 
that actually still, even within that, a very large number of farms are nowadays, you know, really quite large. A large amount of land is locked up in large farms. Um, thanks, Chris. So, um, obviously, your your book and your lecture, you know, had some really good examples of the uh, of data research and data journalism for sort of um, uh, investigating and bring to light these issues and, and being able to campaign on them. But you said at the beginning, and there's a question from James Copestake here, that you know, um, it's very high cost of accessing. Uh, reg the registry, the national registry, um, and you know what, what could be done to promote greater freedom of information and data access for the public. And related to that, another question from Liam McLeese um, asking, "What do you know about the private and offshore owners? Are there any, any other ways of getting into more detail about the uh, corporate, private, and offshore owners?" Well, actually, if I take that one first, because actually to give them some credit, the land registry have started to open up over the last few years. Um, one of the things, the first things that happened, and I think this is, I think Private Eye can uh, take a lot of credit for doing this, is that they, uh, the land registry now do publish um, data uh, regularly on offshore and overseas uh, landowners. Um, and you can download that from the land registry's website, you just have to register there. Uh, as a user of the of the website and you can download it all. What you can't do is download the maps. The maps are still uh, kind of more difficult to get a, to get a handle on um, owing to some various restrictive licenses that have, have also recently changed um, but also just simply just the fact that the land registry and ordnance survey have artificially divided um, the maps from the the actual uh, information on ownership which is which is I think really rather silly and really needs to be corrected. Um, but to be able to um, to be able to, to answer the first question, I mean, fundamentally, it's very simple. The, re the, the land registry needs to be opened up. Uh, there's a great model for this. It's Companies House. Companies House, until a few years ago, was a um, you know demanded fees uh, to be able to look at company records um, in response to pressure from everyone, including you know dataless journalists who said this is you know not very helpful to be able to hold um, corrupt companies to account or to be able to scrutinise what's going on. Um, they opened it up, they made it, they dropped the fees and um, everything's been, been free at a point of access for, for some years now. Um, exactly the same model could be used with the land registry and I think actually um, a lot of the uh, experience of uh, open data campaigners has been to find that actually the overall benefits to the economy of opening up more of this data is, is, is vastly greater than trying to just simply charge um, a few geeks like myself at point of entry to find out what's going on in there. Um, so I think I think really you know you would you would start to see uh, you know a lot more being built off the back of, of this sort of information. Um, you know you'd start to see I think a lot more useful stuff being done around the planning system as well because people could start to see uh, who is lobbying who at the local level in terms of planning as well. Great, I, th I think you've answered quite a few of the uh, questions there, there actually uh, as well. Um, but there are a couple about um, uh, the sort of you know post Brexit. Um, uh, regime for uh, subsidy for, I'm going to put it in those terms, you know, for the sort of public goods uh, in land ownership. Can you can you can you say a little bit about what you think the kind some of the kinds of um, uh, results of that might be of us of this sort of new new means of, um, of of payments to farmers and landowners for what happens with their their land? And I suppose there's a question from. Um, uh, uh, there's a question from, well, there's actually a couple more come in. Um, one from somebody saying, you know, what does it, what, what, what does it actually mean in terms of assistance and subsidies that if you wanted to 
buy a small holding or buy a small farm, uh, rewilding, you know, you mentioned rewilding being better for sort of larger areas, but for people that want to sort of take action, what does it, what will this new regime mean and how much, uh, you know, do you need to kind of make a change even at a small level? I mean, in terms of in terms of the subsidies question, I mean, up until um, well, in, up until now, uh, the vast bulk of farm payments are paid out under a, a sort of basic payment scheme, which essentially rewards the landowner for the or the or the farmer for the amount of land that they own and, and manage. Uh, it's very crude, really. Uh, there's very few strings attached. Um, some basic methods, means of cross compliance, and things basically saying, please don't destroy birds' nests. Uh, and other stuff which is kind of fairly basic um, but really uh, it, it's a kind of no largely no strings attached subsidy for the area of land that you you own and manage um, that thankfully uh, is being reformed um, uh, it, it could have been it could have been reformed through the EU in years gone by um, we're deciding now to reform it because we're leaving uh, through brexit um, I think it's one of the small silver linings to brexit um, it still is hanging in the balance. The agriculture bill has been only just going through Parliament still, uh, and you know uh, it, 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 the, the details of the schemes that are to replace the old system um, are yet to be worked out in in, in large detail. Um, what we've been promised from you know multiple environment secretaries now, from Michael Gove onwards, through to through to uh, George Eustace, who's the current environment secretary, is that we will see a, a system of public money for public goods. And what that is meant to mean is that. Uh, public goods such as the environment, which are not usually paid for at point of sale of food, um, it, it do get extra subsidies. It would be wrong to, I think, continue to subsidise food per se because we already pay for it and the environment doesn't get enough money uh, anyway. So I think things like flood, you know, natural flood defences, uh, trees, uh, grassland restoration, peatland restoration, all these sorts of things ought to be being uh, better subsidised under the new system. But as I say, the, the details are yet to be uh, worked out. And of course, there will be ongoing lobbying uh, by, by landowners, I'm sure, to re remain, to continue to get money uh, for, for, for fewer strings um, uh, and, and for, fewer, for fewer regulations in return. I mean, if, if, when it comes to kind of rewilding, I think everyone can do that, uh, can, can help, uh, maybe not to kind of the extent of, you know, kind of the scale of, uh, of rewilding that's going on in the Glenfeshie estate in Scotland or, or, or Neff in, in Sussex. But, um, you know, if it's about bringing back um, a small amount of untidiness to someone's garden, that's helpful in itself. I think something that we've been beset, beset by uh, in recent decades is ecological tidiness syndrome, which has meant that we kind of equate, uh, you know, tidying up every last corner with, with, a, with a kind of idea of a beautiful garden. But actually, just having more mess, more dynamism in in our in our green spaces, more places for habitats for for wildlife to live in, but also uh, restoring kind of the sense that actually the wild, you know, the, a, a proper functioning ecosystem is a dynamic system. It's not just static. It's not just preserved in aspic. Um, that's why things like beavers being reintroduced to the corners of you know rivers and fields in farmers' fields is fantastic because I think it's showing uh, more and more people how um, actually the ecosystem needs to be changed, it needs to have, uh, it needs to be messy, it needs to have things going on in it where creatures like beavers are, are starting to re-engineer habitats in new and exciting ways and we won't, we won't know all the outcomes of that. Um, it, it, will, it will throw up lots of new and exciting things that we don't yet know. A couple of um, 
questions have come in on uh, you know that perennial hardy of uh, debating this area of land value tax. Um, you know, obviously a long-standing goal of um, land reform advocates, but actually more broadly, I think um, now uh, widely held that you know you can't avoid tax on land because you can't move land, uh, and often the possession of land um, does little to um, uh, encourage investment and actually, you know, landowners, whether in cities or in the countryside, are effectively rent extracting. Um, I mean, do, do you see uh, in trying to help deal with some of these issues about ownership and land use that a land value tax could play a role? And if you do, how do you overcome this problem that uh, there have been advocates for land value tax for a long time, but very little political support for such a move, or at least that's materialised into real change? I think that's it, isn't it? I mean, land value tax obviously does make a lot of sense. It is it is economically efficient. It is um, absolutely it would be a just uh, tax. It would be absolutely right to introduce one. But it has always suffered from this problem of, of you know, no matter how many detailed exposés and pamphlets and books by Henry George and, re you know, revised books on Henry George are issued, it doesn't necessarily get political traction. And I think one of the reasons for that is that, you know, we do obviously have a very large number of uh, relatively speaking, a large number of homeowners in the UK nowadays, um, and compared to the time when Henry George was writing about a land value tax, and so that has created a political or electoral block against, uh, well, not 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 just a, against a land value tax, but against even something as basic as revaluing council tax, which hasn't been revalued since 1991. Um, you know, to be able to make even council tax uh, anywhere closer to uh, the value of of, of properties uh, and, and, and a fairer tax. Is, is very difficult, but there are people trying to push for that and to reframe some of this uh, debate, which I think is really good. I think another way in which um, we could get closer to a land value tax, I mean, one in fact that seems to be being considered even by the current treasury is to at least introduce it on commercial properties. Now, um, you know, COVID has, I think, uh, thrown everything up in the air about uh, what it means for the high street, what it means for the geography of our towns. So I think that has to be, you know, land value tax on commercial properties has to be considered in the light of that. And of course, the, you know, the rise of things like uh, of Amazon and, and, and online shopping and so on. But I think if we wanted to start to get towards land value tax, commercial land value tax before trying to deal with the thorny issues of a, resi of a residential land value tax is essential. But equally, another way forward could be to look at things like actually reviving some of the betterment levies that were part of the part of the planning system. Uh, when it was first introduced in 1947, you know, there's talk now through the planning reforms, most of which could be absolutely disastrous from a point of view of democracy. But in terms of thinking about how much you capture more land, more, more, of, the, or more of the uplift in development um, for the community, if there are moves afoot by Robert Jenrick and others to try and increase that, then that would be good. I have to say, I don't have a huge amount of faith that they'll do it, but uh, yeah. we need to push them. Absolutely. Um, so a question, Guy, from um, Peter Harper here and reflects, I think, some of the concerns and other questions that, and you've touched on this in, in, in your talk, is that, you know, rewilding, planting trees, other uses of land um, don't produce food uh, and food production as a consequence would need to be intensified if we wanted to use our land differently for those goals. Um, so, you know, is that the inevitable consequence of this, that we have less livestock, that we have much more intensive farming, that we have, um, you know, or, or that we move to a much more vegetarian or even vegan diet where we're not actually using livestock on our land? I think this is, I think that the latter is, is, is the key here. And I think that um, we often think of 
land use as being how do we uh, meet the current set of demands with a finite quantity of land. We obviously can't change very much about the current area of land in, in the UK. It's, it's pretty fixed. They aren't making it anymore. Um, uh, and uh, obviously, if we were to simply, simply rewild the UK and turn it into a lovely nature reserve, but kept on eating as much meat and dairy and avocados and everything else that we eat currently, then we'd be exporting, uh, importing, sorry, even more food and uh, exporting the problem and the destruction. So I think the key is to, is to start to, to, to dial down aspects of, of wasteful demand um, and, and to, you know, to eat less but better meat and dairy uh, to, to, to do what indeed our government health guidelines already tell us, which is to, uh, to eat less but better meat and dairy. Um, even just doing that would, would start to free up more land in the UK and around the world for, for nature. And, and you know, that, that's, I think, a, a sensible place to start. Um, I mean, that, that also raises questions about how you get consumers to change their behaviour. So one issue is about you know, what, what we eat and, and, and what we consume. Uh, and another question uh, we had was, well, if, if grouse shooting is such a problem, um, what can you do to influence people that go grouse shooting? I mean, what is it? Why is it that people want to engage in this activity that is apparently so harmful and what, on what can be done about it? Is there pressure that can be brought to bear on not people, not just people who own the land, but also those who consume it in these sorts of ways? Well, I think grass shooting is just I, I love talking about it because it's a, a really great example of, a, of, I think, a very wasteful use of land for a very the benefit of a very small number of people. I could also talk about golf courses, but I probably offend slightly more people. <laughs> uh, I, I think there are, you know, there's just you know, this discussion about golf courses and, the, and access to green space in urban areas particularly. But maybe let's not talk about that. Very, very briefly on, on the, the actual question here of how do you influence um, those, those small number of people? I, I wouldn't actually try and influence them necessarily. I would, I would now go back to government and say, You've promised already uh, multiple times to, to ban uh, one particularly destructive aspect of how this land is used, which is uh, moorland burning. And Zach Goldsmith, Lord, Lord, Lord Goldsmith, as the environment minister, has stood up in parliament many times now and said, we, should, we will and we, we should ban moorland burning. Uh, and I think this is, this is a crucial part of um, the, the issue because ultimately it's, it's moorland burning that allows the landscape to be so intensively managed. Uh, and it's, it's what really underpins some of the, uh, the scale of the shooting that goes on because of the scale of the, the, scale of the population of grouse that is, is, is maintained as a result of that. So I, I wouldn't try necessarily to say, please don't shoot quite as much. Uh, I, I'm, I'm somewhat agnostic on this. Uh, others may disagree, but I, I think that it's, it would be possible to have a much more uh, ecologically conscious uh, hunting fraternity in this country one that was perhaps modelled more on what goes on in Scandinavia, uh, where they have much wilder landscapes, many more trees, uh, much more wilder uh, uplands um, than we do here. But they just don't have the kind of easy cans shooting that we do here. Um, uh, and, and, that, and I think one way to do that is just to get the government to do what it said it's going to do. Um, question uh, here from Nick Glass asking, um, what can local councils and um, in particular also parish councils who want to move this agenda forward uh, can do? What sort of good practice if, if you're a, a councillor or if you're you know wanting to work with your local parish or local authority? Yeah well I mean councils own a huge amount of land as well. I mean councils in England own about 1.3 million acres of land. Um, a lot of that obviously will be already built on or may not be 
uh, suitable for using in any other way than it currently is. But um, I know for a fact that a lot of it is also is is uh, farmland or is uh, woodland or nature reserves, and and there's lots that could be done to either protect that better or improve it and restore it, uh, and and to use it in different ways that is better for the planet. And um, so I think one of the first things that a council or, or or indeed anyone wanting to influence the council should do is is talk to the council about the assets they own. Is to look at the published asset register that every council is meant to publish. Is to request a map of the land and to start to get a handle on on what might be uh, what might be done with that land. Um, councils in the last decade or so have come under particular pressure, thanks to austerity, to sell off assets. Um, I think that's a mistake often. Um, uh, particularly when it comes to things like county farms, which are you know being sold off at a rate of knots, um, it, they're a vital way for farmers to you know new 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 incomers to the farming sector to get a rung on the farming ladder, so to speak, um, to introduce fresh blood into farming, um, and also for potentially increasing you know the kind of area of land uh, being used in a kind of agroecological way. That would be a great way to do more. Uh, nature-friendly farming, having councils as pioneers, you know, following up on all the great words that came from councils over the last couple of years about declaring climate emergencies. Uh, what what are they doing now to to make good on that and and using land that they own in a way that's better for for drawing down carbon, locking it up, and uh, farming in a more nature-friendly way? I think is a absolutely really good thing for them to be doing. Um, I've just got what. One final question, uh, Guy, I think, because you've, you've taken a lot of questions and you've answered them really well. Um, but we started with this question of, you know, uh, the balance between regulating and trying to change the activities of existing landowners or changing patterns of ownership. Um, and Jake Zarin's asked the question, well, you know, why don't we just nationalise some of the most important land? You talked about national parks not being nationally owned in, in contrast to federal reserves. Uh, why don't we create, why don't we simply... Um, uh, seek to nationalise land uh, instead of, you know, paying um, farmers or landowners, you know, subsidies for doing different things, just take them into public ownership? So I would say that I think fundamentally it's about accountability. Uh, land ownership has to be at its root about, uh, reforming land ownership has to be about greater accountability and that could be resolved through greater public ownership of land. Uh, at least there's notionally there a democratic control um, over you know, electing who's in charge or, or, or who's managing that land. Um, I don't necessarily think you get that all the time. You, you know, certainly the kind of more classic status model uh, of, of the 70s or whatever is, is not necessarily uh, the most responsive uh, form of public ownership or state. Um, I think if you were to get, um, I think if you were to increase the amount of community ownership, that might be one way to get more accountable ownership. But I think also it's about just increasing the accountability of whoever is owning land in the end. And whether that's through things like greater transparency, uh, therefore there are more eyes, uh, more people watching what's going on, uh, more league tables, more, you know, more uh, competition between landowners to do the right thing rather than just you know, uh, avert public attention and do the wrong thing, do the default. Um, you know, an open land registry, uh, which reveals all of this, uh, but also, to be honest, more, um, I think a public that, that starts asking these questions more and more. Uh, and I think, you know, starting to rethink what land ownership actually means. You know, we in the UK and England, we have a very long history of seeing land ownership as absolute, as being an Englishman's home, being his castle. Uh, and if you own a castle, 
and it's even more so, uh, particularly if you own a castle with 10,000 acres, you can decide to do whatever you want with it. Mm. But I think we've seen um, a number of challenges to that during the 20th century and the 21st centuries. We saw the planning system uh, evolve, which meant that actually you couldn't necessarily build exactly what you wanted on uh, your land without recourse to um, some degree of public opinion. And more latterly, we've had uh, a, a partial right to roam uh, introduced in England and Wales and a full one in Scotland, which has kind of started to challenge that sense that private property also means the right to exclude others. So I think if we could start to kind of take apart some of these ideas around land ownership being something that's completely absolute, that means you can do whatever you want with it forever, even if that involves destroying the nature on it and destroying something that is ultimately uh, a public good for everyone. For, for, for all for all of for all of the earth and I think we can start to get to a better sense that actually perhaps even we might get to uh, feel that land doesn't belong to us or the earth doesn't belong to us but actually we start to belong to the earth once again and if that's a bit too hippie my apologies but I do work for friends of the earth <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll absolutely let you have that one guy um, thank you very much indeed it was a, a really interesting lecture really really great and um, you know, lots of really great answers to the questions there. Thank you for answering those questions so fully and um, uh, and so thoroughly. Uh, thank you everybody at home for for watching this. Um, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as uh, as I've done uh, this evening. And uh, as I said at the beginning, it will be available as a, as a as a podcast and um, online as a video shortly. So do keep in touch with that if you want to go back over some of the things that guys talked about tonight. Um, and at the Institute for Policy Research, we do have a number of other events coming up um, in October and November, some of which will be about these kind of questions of farming, land use, uh, food supply and climate change. So if you want to keep in touch with us, please do to, to see what's coming up. Um, and there are a number on our website, a number of previous lectures we've had on things like rewilding, for example, uh, in this series. So um, uh, do have a look at that if, if, if you wish as well. So thanks very much, everybody, for taking part. Thank you again, Guy, for your time this evening. It's very thank much appreciated. Uh, and uh, thank you uh, again for all, all of your, your talk and your, your Q&A this evening. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.